the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, good evening and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I am Headmaster and host Rebecca Hagstrom, and it's a privilege to join you every Saturday evening here on AM 1280 The Patriot. And of course, I am joined in studio once again by the producer of Education Nation and my wonderful co-host, Mark Durkin. Hello again, Rebecca. How are you? I'm very good. Very good. We are in the depth of winter here. We're starting to wonder when it was going to come, right? I know. I know. I know. Our assistant headmaster who just moved up here from South Carolina, he says, oh boy, I think I'm, I'm not on the bunny hill anymore. Right. I saw him this week. He's like, I'm ready for it. I'm ready. Here we go. Yep. You might, he might not say that after his greeting of the kids yeah. this morning. It's below zero too this coming week for those right, seven, eight days. I know. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Well, with the contentious transfer of power complete, uh, the focus for many American families will now turn to what American education will look like under President Biden. That's right. The most pressing issue right now facing some of the nation's largest school districts is the issue of vaccination nations for teachers. We're hearing about this and the hesitancy for many districts to reopen for in-person learning comes even as CDC Director Rochelle Walensky says there is an increasing data suggesting that schools can safely reopen and vaccination of teachers is not a prerequisite for the safe reopening of schools. How will the new president weigh in on this? And while campaigning as a candidate, Joe Biden raised some eyebrows with his comments concerning funding for charter schools. What did he say? And also as a candidate, Joe Biden promised that with the passage in the legislature as president, he would sign the Federal Equality Act into law. What would such a law mean for our nation's schools? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that and so much more to talk about. Um, And we're very excited uh, joining us by telephone tonight to help us provide some insight into what education policy might look like under the Biden-Harris administration is Gordon Pennington. Gordon is the former director of marketing with clothing giant Tommy Hilfiger. He's also a full-time international consultant to a number of corporations, governments, and institutions. He's widely known for his broad understanding of the growing power and influence of technology and the series of connections involving global media and entertainment industries. Gordon is currently the managing director of Burning Media Group, And again, we're just so glad to have you on with us tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gordon, on Education Nation. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Rebecca and Mark. And uh, we are certainly in a deep freeze, not only uh, in terms of the immediate meteorology around us, but I think it's a dangerous deep freeze on clear thinking in education right now. Boy, is that true? So I think this this is a very timely discussion. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, before we begin to really examine the current uh, landscape with what will be uh, 
forthcoming and proposed by the current administration. Let's let's just take a look back a little bit, uh, Gordon, to some of the key changes that took place under the presidency of of Donald Trump. What were some of the main highlights, would you say, or pieces of legislation that helped America's K through 12 students over the last four years? And what were some of the agendas surrounding the Trump administration that they tried to advance but maybe weren't able to uh, to do so? Well, I think first and foremost, you have to look at things in a larger scope of history, and time will tell. But in the effort to uh, assess history, and of course, history, as we know, is is essentially written by those who have the dominant influence on any culture. It isn't always mm-hmm. accurate, right. but it is a reflection of the, the assumptions surrounding what those dominant cultures believe and view and record and therefore transmit over time. So let's just say that the Donald Trump experience, if you will, over the last four years was a reflection of, of a populist movement. And that populist movement was reckoned by many to have been something that was that fit a certain kind of sentiment regarding uh, the demographics and psychographics of that movement. Was it a group of people that were less educated and more, more or less mainstream in terms of the working class, the middle class, uh, people that would be variously defined or or misunderstood, I think, as not a reflection of the the coastal elites. Mm -hmm. And I'm summarizing here, and I I realize these are gross generalizations, but it's a starting point only to say that I think what happened with Donald Trump, and and I have to say that I I don't know where categorized him because I had met Donald Trump when he was a businessman in New York in the 1990s. I cannot say that I was a fan. I was impressed with many of his accomplishments, uh, accomplishments, especially fixing the Woolman skating rink, which was famously at the southeast corner of Central Park. Hmm. And government cost overruns and mismanagement of that mm-hmm. in the late 1980s uh, led to you know, something that was very, very um, dimly viewed by the public as just another example of uh, corruption in government and, and, again, gross mismanagement and the inability to get things done. Donald Trump stepped in and got it done within, uh, within a matter of weeks, a project that had taken years. Hmm. And at that point, many had said in New York, even amongst people that were center-left or liberals or historically, and didn't know exactly where to place Trump politically, because Trump was across the board. Trump was probably self-described as a politically patriotic pragmatist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And pragmatism has some very, very specific, as you know, historical ramifications uh, in terms of education philosophy, Mm -hmm. going back to Dewey. But but let's, let's put that aside and say that what Trump accomplished at that time made him so popular. As, had he run for president then, I'm, I would just I would submit he would have been elected. Um, mm. Now Trump is is not without his particular peccadillos and personality wrinkles, and and therefore I would even submit to you and to your listening audience, I was not a Trump fan mm-hmm. at all. I respected some of what he'd done, but that he was a bit too narcissistic um, mm-hmm. in, in in flavor for my liking. But you, look, New York is filled with outsized personalities and living in New York and amongst that culture uh, when I was in the fashion industry led me to encounter a lot of different people. And mm-hmm. your estimation of them was you know, varied, of course. But mm-hmm. I would never have given you a political sentiment about him except to say that he had suddenly become very, very popular, very, very capable in the minds of many people. He'd done something for the public that the city had not been able to do. And, of course, this is at the end of the Ed Koch years and uh, before David Dinkins was elected. 
and before Rudy Giuliani really turned the city around. I think mm-hmm. Rudy was, you know, maybe much clearer uh, about certain things then, and that's a whole other level of discussion. But right. back to the point of what was accomplished, I think the question Mark asked me was what happened during the Trump years at a policy level. Mm-hmm. And I, I will tell you and your listening audience that I was a convert to Trump on on a, uh, you know, just politically speaking, because of his policies. Mm-hmm. I never, I always felt that Trump did himself a certain disservice because I think like many people, he was his own worst enemy. Uh, but in other ways, his policies were extraordinary. Perfect? No. But I mean, the complexity of, with, with which the United States deals with the, you know, affairs and policies, foreign and domestic, are almost incomprehensible to the, you know, to the body politic today. Mm-hmm. But it did open my eyes, and I wouldn't call my, I'm certainly not a Beltway insider, and I'd spent relatively little time in Washington, D.C. I might go once or twice a year. And principally to go to museums mm-hmm. and to, to do other things. And I would check in on my congressman. I'd known members of Congress at times, and I've just checked. But that was it. Mm-hmm. But I would say over the last four years of the Trump administration and the populist awareness that grew around that, my eyes were open just to the depths of dysfunction and disability of our government to clearly deal with a lot of issues. And this goes way, way back. This just isn't just the Trump administration. Go back to eight years of Obama, eight years of George W. Bush, eight years of William Jefferson Clinton, mm-hmm. and four years of um, of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush before that, and then Reagan. And it was mm-hmm. during the Reagan era that I first voted in a federal election. I just had come of age. So Looking at the whole scope and panoply of American policy and the American presence in the world and what each president's uh, doctrine of foreign policies might be summarized as, I would say that the, the, the concurrent themes I began to see more clearly were that there are special interests and always have been throughout history that dictate a lot more policy than let's say, again, the body politic. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. bringing it down to education, I would say what Trump did at a populist level was try to return the reins of education locally to the parents Mm -hmm. and that the money in in principle. And Betsy DeVos, the appointment of her as Secretary of Education, was extraordinary because she certainly didn't need the job. And it brought a a lot of harassment and vilification of her. But uh, she and her family had done more, I think it's inarguable, in the city of Grand Rapids, in the state of Michigan, and in the environments where their family had had influence. They'd done more for public-private part, uh, partnerships than, than almost any family in the country. They'd done an extraordinary job of engaging with the public. And Grand Rapids, as a result of that, had become and has become over the years one of the most desirable places to live um, <laughs> Climate and uh, local meteorological circumstances notwithstanding, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, she'd done a lot, and I think her principal goal was to simply let parents have more say over how their children's education choices look, and w- and that the money would follow the student. Right. And that makes perfect sense to me. And it, even in the context of many of my my closest and dearest African American friends in the inner city, who would say. Gordon, we want to, our kids to have the same opportunities that suburb, wealthy suburban white kids have. Mm-hmm. And how would we get there? And I think we were actually on a path to get there and create more opportunities for inner city kids who are really stuck with failed policies. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like to think that people who care about education uh, come from a broad stripe and background of uh, you know, political conviction. So, right. you know, I have many friends that are center, center left, center right. I wouldn't say that I probably hearken as much to hardcore leftism because leftists are different than historic liberalism. Right. Uh, pro- Very progressivism different. Mm-hmm. Fall, falls into a, a variety of different descriptors. Um, and so does conservatism, because most conservatives today, at least in politics, don't know what conservatism really is. They couldn't, t- they couldn't name the 10 tenets of conservatism. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so go- I'm, I'm just going to suggest that as a policy level, I'm, I'm giving you a long answer, Mark, but um, it's an attempt to put it in a framework. And, and I'll come back to you, Rebecca, please. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm no, that's okay. I didn't mean so, to cut you off. So I'll just add this: what you were saying, you know, based on what you recognized with Donald Trump in his time of New York City, he saw a need; it needed to be met. He went beyond all of the different obstructions that were keeping that skating rink in a position that it was in. Basically, it's promises made, promises kept, and that really transferred over to everything that he attempted in his presidency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then down to education, um, wanting to give the, the like you just said, giving the control back to the parents. And I think four years is tough to make change. And, um, you know, I agree with you that if Betsy DeVos had had another four years, she would have been able to have a greater impact from an educational standpoint. It's they're big ships to try to turn around in these different um, policy groups. So it's it's a tough it's a tough call. But she she did a lot of uh, work on behalf of school choice and um, giving more control at the local level. So that was a good a good thing on her part. So we're going to turn. I think her I think her work was actually. I know she was vilified by many, but I think if you, if you understood the level of concern and compassion that she and her family have brought to education, uh, I think it's, it's really more, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I think what she t- attempted to do was necessary, vital, heroic in many ways. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and greatly misunderstood because I don't think it was always faithfully or clearly reported by the mainstream oh, and establishment absolutely. media. Anybody that was associated with President Trump um, was not going to be given a clear, a fair shake from the very beginning. Okay. So let's jump ahead, Mark, absolutely. to what you were going to talk about. Yeah, let's go ahead and just fast forward to where uh, we're at right now. And really the thing that's been dominating the news over the last week or so is the, the, the president, you know, he pledged to reopen most K-12 through schools within his first 100 days. And teachers, union leaders are saying that's an ambitious goal, but, you know, don't necessarily make that a fixed target. Well, towards the end of January, we started hearing about how members of the Chicago Teachers Union voted to defy an order to the classroom over concerns about COVID. And some 60,000 students were supposed to return to the classroom on February 1st per orders from the district and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Well, the teachers union, they're saying that they want vaccines before returning, despite the CDC director coming out and saying that vaccinating teachers isn't a prerequisite for the safe reopening of U.S. schools. And we're also starting to see the requests that are being made in the Fairfax County, Virginia school district, where, in fact, right now they're demanding and receiving high priority placement for teachers and administrators to be vaccinated against the virus. But what's happening is, is the county public school board and teachers union, they're continuing their delay of opening schools. So in response, 
Is the president really stopping short of saying that teachers should return to in-person instruction in schools? I mean, in your estimation, um, will the president abandon his pledge of reopening most K-12 through schools if teachers' unions insist on delaying reopening? Well, clearly, Mark, uh, <laughs> I'm not a surrogate for the Biden-Harris administration, so I wouldn't be able to tell you any more than um, uh, the new uh, press secretary, Jen Psaki, could say, which is, let me circle back to you on that one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, her favorite <laughs> phrase on disconnect, yep. on preparation, lack of clear- clarity. I mean, this is the, the standard policy, it appears now. I mean, there's no, been no other statement repeated more often. But I would say uh, that I think, and I want to put I want to put this out there fairly, and I suspect your your listening audience maybe is you know has obviously every listening audience has a certain set of opinions or characteristics that that define them, and yours are probably characterized by people that care about education uh, as a high priority, mm-hmm. uh, or they wouldn't be taking the time to listen to your broadcast because you're going deeper than I think most people are probably. Um, able to consider all of the implications of this. But let's just say, let's go back to say that originally on Friday, 13th March of 2020, uh, you know, know, not even a year ago, we heard the extraordinary words that this is a public health crisis, a public, a national public health emergency. I don't know that anybody knew quite where to posit that in terms of the far reaching implications it would later have because Principally, Anthony Fauci had said throughout January, throughout February, into early March, this is not going to affect most Americans. In fact, it may not affect the United States at all. I'm quoting Dr. Fauci. Right. right. Yep. I remember. So the confusion mm-hmm. surrounding that, this is the same Dr. Anthony Fauci that said mask wearing is not necessary. In yes. fact, it's mm-hmm. probably detrimental. I'm quoting yep. Dr. Fauci. Now, either he later said in, in trying to retract this or walk it back, that this was because he feared that there wouldn't be enough, uh, there would be enough masks available. And if that's true, then misleading the public as a, 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 pub, a, a public health physician and scientist in that position, that's either medical malpractice at a, an extraordinary grand, a grand scale to the extent that it, it essentially um, it imperils your listening public who trust you and mm-hmm. believe you. Mm-hmm. If you if you don't have the guts or clarity or conviction or scientific understanding to say things that that really are honest, at what point do you believe that a primary pos- attending position for the state for the nation is capable of deceiving you? Mm-hmm. Let's just posit that as a consideration: the, right. the possibility or and the fact that a leading public health, the leading public health official in this regard, is able to say something that contradicts his knowledge, his understanding of medicine, his understanding of patient care, his understanding of epidemiology, virology, um, molecular biology. If he's capable of lying to the American public, and, and, and then putting it in a different couching and in a different set of uh, descriptive circumstances, what else is he capable of? I just submit that to your listening audience mm-hmm. as a reasonable concern. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So going back, to, and now they're saying it, 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 it's the point of either, is this totally irrational? Is this hyper-rational? Is this real medicine? Or is this, is this the, the political extension of manipulation? And I submit to you that if you're a caring person now, not only is Fauci, you know, 
changed his position to the point where not only does he wear a mask, you should be, if you really care about people, you should be triple masking at all times. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest about it. If there's a, if the variabilities are within, you know, 15 to 20 to 30 percent changes, 30 percent changes in, in, in how much safer it is to triple mask, you must triple mask. Mm-hmm. And you must, you should, you should even consider, I mean, what's reasonable here? You should consider a lot of other things. But what, let's go back to what works and what doesn't work. We've been told so many things that on the face of them are contradictory. Who came up with the appropriate social distancing based on what weighted averages and how much testing? You get where I'm going. I don't mm-hmm. need to mm-hmm. unpack all this again and again and right. again. We've, we've had these discussions because I submit your audience are reasonable people who ab- absolute, absolutely care about the health of their children and the, the teachers and faculty and staffs of their schools. Of course we're caring people. But at what point now do the people that advocated masking at all, I want to see them triple mask at all times and do whatever else would err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that isn't the point. And the point is what percentage of the po- active population in the workspace, in schools, need to be vaccinated when you're already in a position where there is such an extraordinarily low level of transmission and infection and mortality that it doesn't, there's no rational reason to believe. Uh, And I go back to Sweden all the time and people really, really were unhappy with me when I started pointing to Sweden because I know people in Sweden, have friends in Sweden, know doctors who work in Sweden. And I went to them circumventing the establishment media and the mainstream media and going to medically uh, medically um, approved or, or you know, medical journals and other sources to say Sweden came out better than any other comparable block of of, um, of people subjected to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And they did it without uh, requiring masking. It was voluntary social distancing. They did not close their schools, their restaurants, their workplaces. Uh, they had some spikes. Uh, absolutely. But their numbers, their overall infection rates and their overall mortality rates were lower than any comparable population group, especially ap- applicable to Michigan. Mm-hmm. With 9.9 Michigan residents and 10.2 million uh, residents in, in Sweden, pretty comparable. Uh, there are variables, and you could suggest that the, the, the inherent health overall and healthcare system in Sweden was better than Michigan. I'll accept any of those evidences. However, you still have, the, in point of fact, the idea that they went for herd immunity and succeeded and came out better overall with much better economic figures, much better mental health figures, much better cultural health, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you can see that you can see there's a lot to start with, and I know I know this is we're limited for time. Yep, we are I'm giving you extensible yep. answers. Yep, and actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump um, to a different topic here too because I think you made your point that you know it's difficult if 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 we can't trust Dr. Fauci um, to necessarily tell us the truth, then then you create a whole 
confusing scenario then for people. And I think that's where we've run into problems with opening the schools, because I think then people don't know really what to believe. And um, I agree. We've opened Liberty Classical Academy. We've been open since the beginning of the year. And um, we have had very little. uh, We really haven't had spread in the school. Um, The few cases that we've had actually came from outside the school. So. Um, it, you're right that we could we could easily be opening um, our schools right now, and it's it's really a shame that it's not happening. Um, but let's switch over. Um, we have very little time here, uh, Gordon. But let's discuss the school funding and specifically funding for charter schools under President Biden. In 2020, he stated no private charter school will receive a penny of federal money. None. So obviously, this is when he was campaigning. Um, He agrees with the teachers unions on how they feel about charter schools. The National Education Association believes that charter schools are very misguided school reforms. Um, And, of course, that's a radical departure from even President Obama, who enthusiastically championed charter schools, which are very popular among black and Latino Democrats. And according to the black iconic economist Thomas Sewell in 2019, charter school attendees in New York City outperformed students in the public schools. So despite the successes that they're seeing from low-income areas, um, is it safe to say that President Biden, teachers unions, and public schools fear charter schools and that school choice for America's students is a threat to their agendas? Uh, yes, it's safe to say that because schools are viewed as something that are essentially um, an extension of government control, mm-hmm. as opposed to free-thinking people with with genuine liberalism in their ideas and the ability to think critically and independently and engage in, a, in, in the robustness and dynamics of a true democracy. The idea of working in lockstep with the teachers' unions as a as a, a, a body for political support, and that the schools should conform to whatever those unions' dictates are, is um, is precisely what the Biden uh, doctrine of education is. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, Joe Biden for his half a century in office mm-hmm. has <laughs> had is associated with very few meaningful uh, innovations in policy, mm-hmm. particularly education. And if you go back and look at his record in history, and I, and I submit this to your audience uh, without, any, without any prejudice, just look at his history. Please, I'm begging people to look at Biden's history on education mm-hmm. and, and determine what it is that his real proclivities are, other than staying in elected office and profiting from it. That's a mm-hmm. whole conversation itself. But I would submit to you that this is a big step backward, especially for the inner city poor, the inner city working poor, the middle class, people who really want their kids on the basis of a meritocracy to have more educational choice and opportunity. And charter schools are phenomenal. And charter Mm -hmm. schools are part of what make – look, look, you'll never have a perfect education system when you you have forced conformity. Mm Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can you can make that a, a bedrock assumption. You'll never have because kids are different and they're going to perform differently under different circumstances and opportunities and incentives. Right. You mentioned, uh, you know, Joe Biden's career in politics. He told the National Education Association uh, that this was, um, you know, they were going to get the support that they needed and the respect they deserved. He, he talked about higher salaries for educators, universal pre-K tripling the funding for Title I schools, doubling the number of school psychologists, counselors, nurses, and social workers in schools. I mean, what about the students? We don't hear anything about the students Right. 
And we've got it. You've got about yeah, well, ten seconds to comment or twenty <laughs> seconds to comment. <laughs> well, the, 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 there's a lot to unpack there, and perhaps we do it in another segment. But it's yeah. really been a pleasure to be with these are important conversations, and I'm so glad that you're you're holding a torch of educational enlightenment out there for the public to consider. Oh, thank you so much, Gordon. We're so appreciative of having you on today, and we do look forward to the fact that we'll be having you on again next week, and we will probably pick up right there where we left off, and uh, we hope that our listeners have enjoyed listening to this conversation today, and if you want to hear this podcast or any other podcast, you can go to ednationmn.org. Thank you, Mark, too. See you next weekend. All right. Have a good night.